prompted by the Lord to, to pray again and um, ask specifically for revival amongst us. Um, that's, if, you're here, if you're a regular, you know that's not like something we do every week or, or just uh, flippant. But um, I don't know what brought you here today. I don't, know what, I don't know what specifically you came here hoping to receive, but if there's anything other than Jesus, let's just exchange that now. Let's just lay that down and ask for him. You pray with me? Father, as I stand here with your word, um, I'm really aware of my own unworthiness. Uh, Father, forgive us for being flippant about you. the glorious name of which we have been welcomed into his kingdom of the, the holiness of the God of whom we worship. Father, forgive us for taking you lightly. And as we open your word, may you speak loudly. Father, we want our hearts to be revived. We want to see your name lifted up. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see souls saved from, from death and darkness into light and life. But Lord, we can't, that, that won't happen just by a well-put-together service and, and songs and, and hopefully a good sermon, Lord, none of that matters if you don't move in our midst, if you don't stir and show up and show up and, and be big and overwhelm us. So we ask for that, Lord, as we open your word. May you speak loudly. May you use me merely as, as your vessel, as the conduit of which your word and your spirit would flow and speak to each of us individually and then corporately. We come before you, Lord, humbly and grateful and through the blood that you shed. Thank you that you tore the veil. We get to enter into your presence. Forgive us where we've taken you lightly and help us to change that today. Lord, may you change that. Actually, we can't. We're not even able to see you rightly. We're not able to change our hearts, but you can't. So would you do just that? We invite you. We ask for it. We're your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're starting a new sermon series, um, and it is on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be looking at the, the best sermon ever from the best preacher ever in history. Um, and it is, uh, it is a famous sermon. It is chock full of a whole bunch of teachings that, that you have probably heard, whether you knew it was from this context or not. It is fascinating. It is full. Um, we're going we're gonna to be walking through it for a good season here. We'll go right up to Advent with the Beatitudes. We'll pause for Advent, and then we'll jump back into the rest of the sermon after the first of the year. And so it, it is going, we're going to find a lot of content in this uh, sermon that's going to be really uh, compelling and awesome and challenging. But just as amazing as the content is actually the context of this Sermon on the Mount. And so you've probably heard of it, but if, if you're like me, you never studied it in depth. And somehow I got through Bible college and just never really looked at, uh, at this in depth. And so this has been really fun to prepare, and I'm really excited to, to walk through this series with you. But one of the things we see as we take an honest look at the context, it's interesting contextually both where it's at in our Bibles, but more specifically even where it's at in the book of Matthew, uh, and then contextually where it's at in the, in the moment in the, in the uh, uh, the, the history or the, the narrative of Jesus's ministry. So we find this in Matthew 5, um, and Matthew 5 through 7 is going to contain the entire sermon. Um, and 
but if you think about Matthew's book, he, he's putting it together. He's writing a gospel. He's writing about Jesus, and he's writing to Jews. He's writing to the Jewish people to say, hey, that, that Messiah that we've been waiting for, that we've been doing festivals and, 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 and um, looking forward to, he's, he's come. His name was Jesus. And, and so he's writing an apologetic and an explanation and a gospel account of Jesus. And, and when he's doing that, he puts it interestingly, kind of at the beginning of his book. So he's walked through the genealogy of Jesus and then Jesus beginning his ministry. And then he puts this right here at the beginning. And it's interesting. It's sandwiched right between two almost identical verses. So if you look at, at 423, just ahead, or uh, just before this passage in chapter five, um, Matthew 423 says this, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction amongst the people. And then if you go to Matthew 9, 35, it's almost the same verbatim passage. It says this, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the, these are the bookends. And in between this, we have the Sermon on the Mount. So five through seven is sort of the, the teaching content, if you will. This is, so Jesus is preaching, saying, the kingdom is coming, he's preaching about the kingdom, and he's healing. Okay, so five through seven is the, the, the way of the kingdom. This is, the, 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 this is how people within the kingdom live. This is Jesus' teaching. And then eight and nine of Matthew, the chapters of, of Matthew, are chock full of, Jesus, of stories of Jesus healing and casting out demons and performing miracles. Hey, this is where he calms the storm. And so it, we have a tendency... We, we kind of give this criticism to the larger culture, but I think we have similar tendencies even in, within the church to overemphasize or to look at Jesus as either a good and great moral teacher, right, that said some good things, and we should, fo you know, we should follow his teaching, but, but we don't really want to get into that whole, like, he was God stuff. Like, the miracles, that was more probably mythical, right? And he probably really didn't raise from the dead, right? The culture looks at him that way, and we're probably not that extreme, but there's some, you know, there's some of that in there. Or some of us want to go the other way, right? We're like, man, I really like Jesus the healer, right? I really like Jesus the miracle worker, the powerful, the one who we can worship, but I'm really not crazy about some of these teachings. I don't want him messing with my life, right? And so sometimes we want to overemphasize these things, but I think what, Mark, or what Matthew is doing by putting this in this context is making it clear that he is indeed the king. He has indeed brought the kingdom, and you don't get one Jesus without the other. You don't get the teacher Jesus without the miracle-working Jesus. You don't get the, the good and ethical moral teacher without the also calming of the storm Jesus. You don't get the Jesus of healing the paralytic without also getting the Jesus of don't get divorced. You don't get the Jesus of casting out demons without also getting the Jesus who says, don't be angry at your brother, right? And so we, we have both of these things, and, and, and Matthew is putting it here intentionally to say, hey, this is our king, and he has brought the kingdom, and it is revolutionizing life. It's turning the world, what might look like upside down to us, but in fact, what Jesus is actually doing is coming to an upside down, upside down world and flipping it back right side up, Amen. We just sang about, isn't the, is, like we all can see, and yes and amen, the world is broken. Jesus entered into this broken world um, and, and says, hey, I've come to set things right, and this is the way in which we're going to do that. So he starts, I got a lot to cover today. I got to intro the sermon series at large, right, the Sermon on the Mount. Then I got to intro the sub, you know, kind of the subtext or heading of the Beatitudes, and then we're going to cover the first Beatitude. So we're going to move quick. We're going to go through a bunch of, uh, you know, examples in the scripture. But so he starts this Sermon on the Mount about the kingdom with what is called the Beatitudes. And right there, right off the bat, Jesus is going to be talking about something everybody cares about. 
Jesus is going to be a topical preacher even today, right? What's the felt need of the culture? He's going to talk about happiness. The word beatitude is, is taken from the Latin word for um, happiness or blessedness. Okay, so Jesus is right off the bat going to talk about happiness. He knows that everybody is after it, right? Everybody is in pursuit of happiness. That was the first official date that my wife and I went on was to the movie theater, back when that was still a thing, to see the movie, the Will Smith movie, Pursuit of Happiness, right? Um, everybody is on some pursuit to get happiness in some way. And listen, depending on different variables in your life, your desires, your path, it's going to look different for everybody, but everybody is longing for and is after happiness. And so Jesus steps into this world that is so characterized by false promises of happiness. And he says, this is the way. You've been told it's this way. You've been told you'll get happiness by going this route and by taking this, but I'm telling you it's this way. And listen, this whole you know, you've been told that starts, that starts all the way back in the garden with our first parents being deceived by Satan. Like that's the, the, the root of the fall of man is this invitation or this deception to receive happiness somewhere other than God, right? To, to hey, take and eat. Oh, God doesn't want you to eat that? That's because he's holding out on you, right? This is what Satan says to our first parents. Oh, yeah, yeah, he knows if you eat that, you'll be like him. And ever since, the world has been fractured in ways that we all can relate and groan and, and, and look at and grieve. But if we trace the root, every bit of that brokenness is actually rooted all the way back in some false pursuit in the wrong direction for happiness. Right, That sin and, and, and the world and even our own bodies are constantly telling us, hey, if you just get this, then you'll be happy. Right? And sometimes it's good and right and, and seemingly neutral or innocent things. Right, If you just get this job or you get this marriage or you get this you know, fill in the blank, then you'll be happy. If you can just get to this place or this thing. Right? But it gets more and more twisted the darker and the more inside your world you go right? to, to the world of addiction. If you can just get one more thing or you can just get one more hit or if I can just have this one experience, right? then I'll be happy. Right? We're constantly chasing this thirst or this pursuit for happiness. Jesus steps into the world and says, listen, all of those things are overpromising and they cannot deliver. They all leave you wanting. They all leave you only more aware of the brokenness of this world because when you get those things, if you get those things, you realize they too are hollow, right? I often point us back to the celebrity culture, right? They have, they have been generous to give us a plethora of examples to show us that, hey, getting everything you want, getting all the money you want, all the fame you want, all the, you know, sex and, 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 looks and all the things that you, you can, you know, all the plastic surgery you can buy, all of those things, they're still not happy, are they? Right, example after example, end up in addiction, end up in rehab, end up losing, losing their sanity. Why? Because those things aren't going to lead to happiness. So Jesus steps into this world that is so defined by this wrong, you know, this, this right pursuit of happiness, but with the wrong direction. And he says, hey, there's, there's, there's a paradox to this, but if you want to find your life, you actually got to lay it down. If you want to find happiness, you're actually going to need to lay down your own pursuit and pick this up. And this is sort of what fuels the Beatitudes and how, what starts this deal is Jesus is talking about what looks like an upside down kingdom, right? He's going to be talking about this is the way that you actually get happiness. This is the way you get lasting happiness. And so that is the Sermon on the Mount that starts with the Beatitudes. And we're going to start today by looking at 
the first one, which is uh, poor in spirit. But before we do that, uh, we need to look at some, just, just some characteristics about the Beatitudes in general. All right, so when we approach these, um, you know, I don't know if you've studied them or not. You've likely heard of them, like whether you've studied them or not, you've heard of them. And here's what we need to know a few things about the Beatitudes as we approach this. First of all, this is not a list of things to do, okay? So we just need to know that right off the, right off the bat. This is not a list of things to do. That we, this is not a list of things that we should do to get into heaven, right? It's not that if you become these things or do these things, then you get into heaven. Rather, this is... This is um, a description of what the people in the kingdom of heaven actually look like and live like, right? This is a description of those who are in the kingdom. This is how kingdom people live. It's interesting. Jesus is, the context as we look at verse 1 and 2, um, Jesus sees the crowds. So Jesus is already drawn crowds, okay? Um, because he's been performing miracles, right? So people are following him. He sees the crowds, and, and it seems like he's probably on the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these crowds, so he goes and moves up onto a mountain, right? So if you, you kind of picture that landscape, this is a, a lake-like you know, environment that's surrounded by mountains, but probably without trees. And so Jesus would, would move up, and, he, and so he takes a seat somewhere on the mountain, and his disciples sit down around him, it says in verse 1. His disciples came to him. He sits down. He's ready to teach. They sit down around him. But... We see later in the Sermon on the Mount that while he's speaking to his disciples who are immediately around him, the crowds are still out there listening because they're going to have a reaction to it at the end. So he's not speaking directly to them. He's speaking to the disciples, but the crowds are listening and they have a reaction and a response to his authority that actually want, make them want more and, and step further into the kingdom. But he's talking to those that are already a part of the kingdom. He's talking to his disciples. Just as a quick note, this is kind of how we try to aim our services on Sunday, right? We're mainly talking to, mainly looking at God's people, right? Our church, right? We're not primarily writing sermons and, and developing uh, service plans to appeal to the outsider, the person who's not a Christian, and outside the church. We're primarily looking at God's people, right? And we're speaking God's word to God's people. Now, just like here, it's good for anybody outside of the kingdom to listen in to what God has to say to his people. It's good and right. And so you should feel free to invite people because we absolutely want them to listen in and hear what our God has to say to us as his people. So as he's doing that, he's talking about, hey, this is how we live within the kingdom. This is not unlike Colossians, right? Where we, we looked at Colossians and before you get to the what you're supposed to do, you get a whole big dose of who he is, right? Before you get to the imperatives, you get the indicatives, right? And the imperatives are the commands. Here's what you should do. But before you go there, you have to receive the indicatives, this is what is true, right? So you get what is true before you get to the what you're supposed to do. And so we have to keep that in mind with the Sermon on the Mountain as well. This is not a list of things to do. Okay, if I become born spirit, if I become merciful, then I'll be a part of the kingdom of God. No, the, as we're going to see in just a minute, these are not natural tendencies that we can work up within ourselves that then will get us rewarded. Rather, this is talking about this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of, of God. So just real quick bullet points. <clears throat> You've had them up there for a minute. You probably read through them all. All, Christian, all Christians are supposed to be like this. This is not just for, you know, exemplary varsity Christians that should be this. I don't know what you've thought as you've read these before. Like, man, blessed are the poor in spirit, the merciful, and peacemakers. Like, man, maybe you thought I'm some of them, right? I'm not all of them, or some people are them. But, man, that's just not, I'm not those things. Well, this is, this is not for just the varsity. This is supposed to be true of all Christians. And... Secondarily, 
all Christians are supposed to manifest all of these, right? So this is not like a, this is different than spiritual gifts, right? So as we look at spiritual gifts and we walk through that in 1 Corinthians, God's going to give some people this gift and other people another gift, and, and they're going to together work collectively uh, as a body to accomplish the work of, of the Lord. This is not like that. This is more like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is actually singular, right? We get it, we get it all in one, and we may be stronger. We may live out more of, of these things, same with the fruit of the Spirit. At different times, we've got to keep working on others, but it's not like we get to pick one. Oh, well, I, you know, I've decided I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to let somebody else handle that whole poor deal, that poor in spirit deal, right? I've decided I'm going to be, you know, uh, meek. I'll let somebody else handle that whole uh, persecuting thing. I'm opting out of that, right? This is not how this works, right? This is, we are all supposed to embody all of these things. Now, again, because we're not perfect, because we're not there like Jesus yet. One day we will be, and that's the example of all these things. We're all striving to be like him, but because we're not there yet, there will be varying degrees of strength and, and stand out as we walk through these, as we examine our own life, and as we look at other people, but that doesn't mean we just settle into that. We keep striving to, to live out uh, Christ-likeness, and, and that will include all of these things, okay? And then we need to know this is not referring to just natural character traits, right? Because sometimes you read these, you know, like you know somebody who's just naturally kind of meek, right? You know somebody who's just naturally merciful. This is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about natural tendency, character trait sort of things. These are things that without a born-again heart, without the Spirit of God taking out the old and filling with the new, none of these things are possible. These are supernatural, part of the new kingdom, God dwelling in you, causing these things to be uh, brought out and filled out in your life. This is what these are talking about. This is, this is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians. This is not just natural bent and tendency toward these things. Um, and then lastly, the, these are meant to indicate and kind of set apart the essential difference between Christian and non-Christian, right? Here's the deal. I, I, we overcorrect all the time. It's just a part of our tendency as, as a people. And the church is no exception. And there's sometimes whenever the church in history has been so scared of the outside world and those people who are not yet in the church that all we want to do is huddle up over here in our churches and maybe lob some truth grenades over at them and make sure they know the door's over there. If they want to come in, they can clean themselves up and then come in, right? Well, we don't want to get too close to them. Right, and then, then the pendulum swings the other way where we want to we want to get in and among them so much that we want to stop looking like Christians, right? We don't even want to know. We don't want people to know, right? We don't want to dress like like some of you told some of you invited friends here and you're like, man, our pastor doesn't even look like a pastor. He's got a goofy haircut and he wears regular clothes, right? Like he doesn't he doesn't have the uniform, he doesn't wear a suit. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I don't need, I'm not gonna, I'm not putting on a suit next week, just so you know. I'm not saying that's wrong. But sometimes we've overcorrected to say, hey, we don't want to look like Christians, we don't want to look any different when Jesus is saying, no, no, there should absolutely be a difference. There should absolutely be a difference in the way that you live and your character should stand out over and against the jacked up world. Amen? So, so this is indicating, hey, this is what the kingdom of God, this is what the people in the kingdom of God should look like. This is who we should look like. And that's only because that's who our Jesus is. All right? So not a list of things to do. <clears throat> and and it's, it's all of these for all of us, okay? So that's sort of the context. Now let's look at the first one. Uh, the first one <clears throat> is, verse 2, he says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. All right, so that scene set. Disciples are there. Crowds are out listening. And he opens his mouth. And this is how he starts his sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this one is sort of 
Um, it's, it's first for a reason, because it's sort of the gateway to the kingdom. It's sort of the, the way in which you enter in to the rest of these. So the first one and the last one in verse 10 are going to be coupled with, um, well, you got 11. It, it, we'll, we'll get into that. But they're coupled with this is the kingdom, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? And then the, the rest of them are promises that are sort of in the future, right? So as you go on, blessed are the mourn, or those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The, the meek will inherit the earth. The righteousness will be satisfied. So the ones in the middle are sort of this future tense that we will get there. And that's sort of pointing us at heaven. But the beginning and the end says there is the kingdom of heaven. This brings us into this reality that Jesus' kingdom is, is what theologians would call the already, but not yet. So it is here, it is present, and it's broken through, but it it's not fully consummated. It's not fully realized. So we get a foretaste of these things, right? We get a foretaste of the kingdom, but there's more to come. Amen? That's good news, isn't there? There's more to come. And so this lives in that, that, that already but not yet context. And, and the poor in spirit is, as I said, the first one for the reason, because here's the deal. Um, but, okay, you got to know a couple of things. This does not mean materialistically poor. Okay, that's not what this is talking about. This is not about being poor financially or being depressed, right? It's not having a, a bad spirit about you and being down and ho-hum, right? This, this wrongly interpreted has led some Christians to like sell everything they got and, and become like monk type deal. Listen, Jesus might lead you to sell everything you got, but it won't be because of this, this verse, okay? Because this verse is not about how much you have. It's not about how much you have, but rather how you view yourself before God. Okay, being poor in spirit is not about how much you have or you don't have. Because, you know, you can have nothing and still be in love with money, still be rich in spirit, still have pride. All right, so it's not about how much you have, it's rather how, how do you view yourself before God. So that's the reason that this is first, because it is, it is the gateway into the kingdom. Nobody can enter into the kingdom of God without first realizing that they have no right on their own merit to be there. I'll say that again. Nobody can enter into the kingdom of God without first realizing that on your own, you have no right to be there. Okay? If you don't realize that right off the bat, then you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Any pursuit, you may come to church, you may try to do better, you may even do better in many areas. But if you haven't first realized that, man, I have no ability, I have no righteousness, I have no business in the presence of a living and holy God, then you can't actually enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Um, somebody said this... Part of the point of this is, is to show us this grand mountain, and as we look at it, we should come to the realization that we, we have no ability to climb it. Like, we're out. We can't. We will not be able to. And so the first step is to confessing that and asking this and, and realizing that we must have help. We must have a Savior. So yes, Jesus wants to give us the fullness of life. Amen? He's, he said, I come, you may have life and have it abundantly. He, speak, he steps into this world who, who is filled with all these empty promises of if you get this, then you'll be happy. If you do this, then you'll be satisfied. He steps into this world. He says, hey, I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. But in order to receive life, you've got to first lay down your own. 
Jesus says, if you want to find life, you're actually going to have to die to yourself. That if you want to find life, you're going to have to lay down yourself and pick up this thing called a cross, which the cross is a death tool, right? The cross is an is a execution uh, machine and device that we use to kill people, right? Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you actually got to stop trying to milk it out of this world and lay that down and come and follow me. And, and as you do that, you are emptied of yourself. You are emptied of your flesh. You're emptied of your old way of life. And once you're emptied, then you can be filled back up. So yes, Jesus has come to fill us up. Yes, he's get, come to, to bring us the fullness. But before we can be filled up, we first have to be emptied, right? Before he can give the new wine into these old wineskins, he's got to get out the old, right? And so that's the first step is that we have to, we have to realize that we have nothing to offer. John Piper, um, which I could, like, I just want to attribute uh, much of the series and sermon, I've been really helped by John Piper and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, in, in their, their writings and their sermons on these. But he, Piper calls this the best news that a hopeless sinner could ever hear. This is the best news, that the condition that we must meet in order to have dealings with God is actually spiritual bankruptcy. That's good news, isn't it? <clears throat> that what you have to, the, the condition, the, the pre-qualification, if you will, to, to have a dealing with God is that you actually have to not have a bunch of moral status in the bank, not that you've done this, not that you have this record to hold up and say, hey, I'm a pretty good person. No, no, the, the condition that you need to meet is actually spiritual bankruptcy. He says it's the easiest and the hardest condition of all. He says, what could be easier than having an empty hand? Unless, he says, you're clutching a $1,000 bill or your own personal bill of rights that you're going to hold on to. Now it gets a little harder, right? So <clears throat> the gospel of the kingdom takes this, this thing, poverty, helplessness, this thing that's not valued in our culture, is it? Like nobody aspires to be helpless, do they? Nobody aspires to be poor. Nobody aspires to these things. But the kingdom takes this thing and, and, and actually exalts it as the very thing that you have to do to enter into the kingdom. So instead of curing that, it actually says, hey, that's where you have to start. It's the doorway into heaven, if you will. The only people who will come to Jesus are those who know that they are spiritually and morally crippled. If you don't get there first, you're not getting to Jesus. You may get religion, you may get church stuff, you may do some Christian things, but if you haven't started by understanding and embracing that you are spiritually and morally crippled and without hope, then you didn't actually receive Jesus. You have to start there. So let's look. Let, let, this whole idea of being poor spirit is a little bit difficult to wrap our mind around. Again, it's not about materialism. It's not about our personality. It's not about our, you know, our mood. So what is it about? Let's look at, we're going to run through a bunch of uh, uh, examples in the scripture and then we'll, we'll land at the end and, and try to uh, um, <clears throat> speak directly to where we are. So let's look at Abraham. Throughout the scripture, we have a, a bunch of examples. I've, a, I've, I've chose a few. Uh, Abraham in, in Genesis 18, 27, answered to the Lord, right? When, when he's calling him, he says, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. So you see this, this posture of Abraham does not presume that he has a right to walk in and get an audience with God Almighty. He presumes the other way, actually, that I have no business being here. We see similarly from Jacob in Genesis 32.10. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. 
for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I come back between two camps. Jacob has been prospered, if you know the story. He, he leaves fleeing for his life with nothing but a staff. The Lord blesses him, and he's coming back with two whole camps worth of people, resources, and goods. But he doesn't, he, he's not postured up, right? He's not chest out. He, he, he's not saying that, okay, now I'm somebody, right? I left as a nobody, but now I'm somebody. Everybody needs to recognize, no, he's humbly saying, this came from the Lord. This is, this is not my well-doing. I don't deserve any of this, and yet you have graciously, lavishly loaded it onto me. Let's look at Moses a little bit more in depth. When Moses is being called in Exodus 3, he says to God, he says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Like, we, that's lost on us because it's just kind of children's story, but if you think of the most powerful person in the world, right, who are you to think you're going to walk down to, uh, you know, the White House and just get an audience with the President of the United States, Right? You ain't even getting close to that deal, right? You have no credentials. You're getting laughed out of this deal, right? Moses says, uh, that's Pharaoh, Lord. He doesn't take an audience for just anybody. And more than that, Moses is a fugitive, right? Like he's wanted. All right, so there's a lot going on there. But Moses doesn't presume. He says, who am I that I'm going to go talk to him and bring out the children of Israel? But Moses says to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I, I'm not eloquent. I can't talk good, right? He's like, I can't do this. You want me to go give a speech? You want me to get our people out? You got the wrong guy. Like, you got your signals crossed. Must have been my neighbor. I don't know who you were trying to get, Lord, but it, it's not me. I'm not eloquent. I can't talk. He says, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. He stuttered. He couldn't talk well, and yet God sends him out. And Moses is going, this is the, this is the wrong move, Lord. Like, you're going to blow all of this. You, sit, you put me in the game now, we're going to lose it. Like, this is not the right move. Let me ask you this. Does Moses have high self-esteem? No, he doesn't, does he? Let's just put this in modern language terms. Does Moses have high self-esteem? No. He's very aware of his shortcomings. He's very aware of what he is not. Now, if you know the story well, you might be saying, well, didn't God get angry at Moses right after this for doubting that he'd picked the wrong guy? Well, but here's the deal. Here's what God got mad at. It's not for the reason you might think. God gets angry at Moses for his lack of faith in God's ability, not because he's down on himself. God, like, God would agree with Moses' um, description of himself. God's like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I've heard you talk, bro. I've listened to your prayers, right? Like, I get it. You ain't smooth. Like, he knows that. But he's not mad at Moses for that. And he doesn't give him some pep talk about how he actually is a really good guy and he can handle it. No, what does he do? Uh, if we go to uh, the next couple verses of Exodus 4, here's how, here's how God responds to Moses. He says, hey, who has made man's mouth? You worried about your mouth? Who made that thing? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? You worried about going before Pharaoh with your stutter? He's, who, who made your mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, he's not mad at Moses for having it being down on himself. He's mad at Moses for not having faith in who he was and who God was, not about Moses' self-esteem and ability, right? So the biblical solution to being paralyzed by guilt or low self-esteem, the biblical solution to low self-esteem is not higher self-esteem, 
You need to know this, right? This is hugely relevant in our, in our you know, conversation with raising kids. Like, we want to be careful what we're, you know, preaching, what we're telling people is not that they're enough and they just need to self-actualize and, and realize. And if, you know, you can just get this out of yourself and be better, do better, get, try harder. It's really within you. The biblical solution is not to give Moses a pep talk and tell him how he actually is a good speaker. And we can get better, buddy, and we'll, we'll get this done. No, no, no. He says, yeah, I know, but... You're looking at the wrong person. He, 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 gives, he, he tells them, stop looking at your own unworthiness and uselessness and look at me, God says to Moses. I made the mouth. I will be with you. I will help you. I will teach you what to say. Look to me and you will live. So the biblical answer to low self-esteem is not high self-esteem. It's actually sovereign grace. It's looking at the sovereign. It's looking at the almighty and all-powerful and crying out, acknowledging your weaknesses, but then looking to him as enough. <clears throat> Let's move on to David. We, we know the famous passage from Psalm 51 where David is in repentance, right? And we kind of expect this dude to be broken in this moment, right? He's not proud here, but, but nonetheless, it's important. He's just committed adultery and murder, but he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, that you will not despise. So we kind of get that in this moment of, you know, he's been busted and, and things have not gone well. But look at it in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. This is, this is rather in a moment of prosperity. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. He says, listen, so in this moment he's going, yeah, he's got a king, like David's got a kingdom. David's done some things. David's had some songs written about him. David's had some women swoon over him. David's had some dudes want to join his army. David's done some things at this point. And he's got a kingdom and he's got some riches and, and they're, they're offering them. But he said, David said, listen, whatever we give to you, Lord, we're just giving back out of whatever you gave to us. Whatever I offer you, it's only a return of what you blessed me with because I didn't earn it. I'm not worthy. This is you, Lord. So David is showing us what it means to be poor in spirit. It's, it's not, David did not, when he became poor in spirit, run and hide and, you know, lay down all of his strength and all of his warrior ability and all of his wisdom that God had given him. No, no, no. He remains in that. We're going to see that in Peter later. He remains the same person that God made him to be, but he's not thinking highly of himself. Again, it's not about what you have. It's about how you view yourself before God. It's not about what you have, but it's about how you view yourself before God. David's got a lot of stuff, but he has no pretense about how he got that, who earned that. Now, he has moments later, right? You could trace the fall in his life to probably forgetting that, right? Getting lax on that. But here we see David living out being poor in spirit. David's son Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7. Solomon, who becomes the richest and the wisest, right? That people, uh, queen of Sheba literally travels from afar to see the greatness that God has blessed Israel with, and particularly Solomon. This guy's a big deal. You read Ecclesiastes, you read these books, you see this guy has all the resources that any of us could ever dream of. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And yet, here he is. He says, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. And although I'm but a little child, I don't know how to go out or come in. This is the beginning of this deal, but he starts there. And because he starts there, God is able to give him wisdom, right? He is poor in spirit. He's not presumptuous 
about being entitled to the throne. He's not presumptuous about what God owes him. Rather, he understands he has nothing to offer this holy God, and he is poor in spirit. Let's move on to Job. Job 42, 5 and 6 says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think that's what I was praying for earlier today when I got up here. So many of men, we've heard of God. We know what we're supposed to do. We know how to go through the motions of a worship service, maybe even lift our hands, live this way, act this way, whatever. You know, we can fill in those blanks. But here, Job is saying, oh my gosh, now I see you. Now I see you. And as I see you, he says, I despise myself. And, and he's got dust and ashes. He's repenting. He's saying, I'm not worthy. I can't stand in your presence. Likewise, we see Isaiah, the famous passage. I, I referenced it last week. Isaiah's brought into the throne room of God. And, and there he's immediately brought, like immediately confronted with the realization that he does not belong. In verse 5 of Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I'm done. I'm undone, he says. He knows that. It's very clear to him. Poor in spirit. Let's move on to the New Testament. We have John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus calls him the greatest man to ever walk the earth. What does John say about himself? He says, even he who comes after me, he says, listen, John's, John's got a, a following of his own, but he's saying, listen, there's somebody coming after me of whom I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Later in John 3.30, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. John is not out for his own platform. John is not out to, to leverage his ministry Okay, he's not out for the John the Baptist brand, right? He is there to make much of Jesus. He knows he, with and of himself, is nothing. Jesus is what it's all about. He's being poor in spirit. The tax collector in Luke 18, the tax collector says this. I tell you, or while Jesus tells this story about the tax collector, he says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a story where Jesus is telling of two people. One is really religious, and as he prays, he wants to make sure everybody sees all of his religiousness, right? You ever met somebody who's really, really bent on making sure you know they're humble? Isn't that awkward? They start listing off the reasons that they're humble and why they're humble, and oh, I'm just nothing, and I'm just this little thing, and you know, you're like, man, it seems like you actually think... Pretty high of yourself in your humility, don't you? Right? Like it gets a little weird. Jesus tells a story of this people. He's one guy saying, man, I'm so glad I'm not like that. So I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner. Thank you, Lord, for making me this, this good person. Right? I'm paraphrasing. But then he says there's a tax collector. Everybody despises him. And he says when he stands before the Lord in prayer, he just beats his chest. He says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm a sinner poor in spirit. He doesn't presume he has anything to offer to the holy God. Instead, he just beats his chest and cries for mercy. And Jesus says, this man goes home justified, not the other. The centurion in Luke chapter 7, this guy has his own army. He gets it. He is a big deal to a lot of people. But when he is in need, he doesn't presume to come before Jesus with anything other than poverty of spirit. So uh, Jesus in uh, <clears throat> In Luke 7, 6 through 9, Jesus went with them in his response. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying, Lord, don't, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
Therefore, I didn't presume to come to you, but, but I just, just say the word and let my servant be healed. This guy said, listen, I don't presume that I deserve you being in my house. All, like, that's why I just sent a servant asking for you to just speak it because all you got to do is speak it and I know it can be done, Lord. And when Jesus heard these things, when he heard this man's faith, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. This guy's showing poverty of spirit. He's laying down his own worthiness and, and crying out and saying, I've got nothing to bring before you, Lord, but if you're willing. The Canaanite woman of Matthew 15, <clears throat> she answers Jesus and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus is, is glad to then... Um, Bless her with healing. We see Peter. I'm going to take a little bit dark, uh, deeper look at Peter. We know some stuff about Peter, don't we? A lot of these people are one-offs. We don't know a ton about him. We know some things about Peter. Peter was what? Peter was, did Peter have low self-esteem? No. Peter, was pretty, pretty, Peter had some high self-esteem most of the time, right? He was like, no way, Lord. You're not, you're not going to wash my feet, right? Like Peter's the guy. He just, he's, he's pretty aggressive. He's pretty um, confident, things that our, our culture would also exalt, right? That's Peter. But when Peter truly sees the Lord, when he's confronted, like Job, when he sees the Lord in his glory in Luke 5, 8, he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. All of that posturing is immediately confronted when he sees who Jesus is. He lays it all down. Everything he had in his hands, it's gone. It's done. I got nothing. We see later in, in, in his own epistle when he writes 2 Peter that he, that he, he um, pays homage to Paul, right? And he's, if you know this passage, he's like, hey, yeah, I know Paul when he writes stuff. It's really hard to believe. It makes my head hurt too, or not believe. It's hard to understand. Paul makes my head hurt too. I'm just a simple guy, right? So even in that, he's, he's given homage to Paul as this guy who God is using mightily, right? But we see that he remains this bold and, and in many ways, fearless leader for the Lord, and yet is also at the same time poor in spirit. So Jesus doesn't take him and, and get rid of all of the personality that's in Peter, does he? He doesn't make Peter less confident. He doesn't make Peter less bold. He, no, he, he says, Peter, you just need to understand you got nothing to offer a holy God when you're standing in his presence. But if you'll understand that and come to me, I'm going to use you mightily. I'm going to use you to help launch my church. All right, so he's, he's still the Peter that we know, but he's at the same time poor in spirit. And we, we got Paul. As we, as we wrap up and come toward the end here, we, we, Paul was a man of power before he met Jesus. This is a guy who is, is getting um, state-issued orders to persecute the church. Right? People fear him and people respect him everywhere he goes. Paul has some clout. He has a reputation. And as you read his epistles, you can sort of see that he, he continually battles pride. And, and he mentions boasting all the time. He's always saying, I boast in nothing but the Lord Jesus Christ all the time, right? But Romans 7, 18, most, most clearly he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, this saying is trustworthy and true. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost of sinners, he says. This is Paul. He says, I'm the chief. But I receive mercy for this reason, he says. Not because I deserved it, 
that I receive mercy, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We see in Philippians 3 that Paul says, listen, if you want to just lay out um, you know, portfolios, you want, to, you want to just compare resumes, I'm going to win. Paul says, if anybody has reason to boast, I got some things. Listen to him. He says in, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, hey, we're the circumcision. He says, I was a Jew. He, I, Gentiles are one thing. He says, I was a Jew. Like I was prestiged among the people of God. And we worship the spirit of God in the Lord of Jesus Christ. And put in, but he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, he says, I've got more. And he lists off his resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. Um, as to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. He says, all these things that his culture would have said, you got to get hit here or here, and then you'll have prestige. He says, I, I've got him. I checked those boxes. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. To the law, Pharisee. This is a guy who had to commit the first five books of the Bible to memory, right? He knows it front and back. He's gone through that school. And as to zeal, he says, you want somebody who's actually done something with that knowledge? He says, I was persecuting the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He says, you want somebody who could follow rules? I had them. I was doing well, following all the rules. But he says this, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung or crap or nothing in order that I may gain Christ. He says, I've had stuff. And, and, and I immediately, when, I, when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, when Jesus confronted him, just like he did to Job, when, just like he did to Peter, when, when Paul was confronted with the holiness of this Jesus of Nazareth, he immediately knew that nothing in his resume, nothing in his portfolio, nothing that he had done mattered at all. That if he didn't have that, all of this was, was worthless. And so he laid it all down to receive that. And then this confident, bold, persecuting man becomes a man who preaches with fear and trembling, it says. He's a man who demanded respect and fear everywhere he went. And on the other side of the gospel, on the other side of Jesus, he's preaching to the church with fear and trembling. And then we have, of course, Jesus himself. John 14, 10, Jesus says, don't believe that I am the Father, or do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is, is deferring in his own poverty of spirit, saying, I'm just here to do what he tells me. Anything good you see in me is about God the Father. We see Philippians chapter 2 that we look at often, Jesus laying that down to step into our mess. He's not presuming that he has to be worshipped. Instead, he's stepping in so that he can make a way for us to worship him. This is a picture in our Bible of what it means to be poor in spirit. So we're going to boil that down and try to give a bit of a definition. Uh, borrowing this from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and this is how he would kind of describe what it means to be poor in spirit. It, poor in the Spirit is a tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. 
our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. It's the complete absence of pride, of self-assurance, and self-reliance. It's a sense of powerlessness within ourselves. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you realize you have no power within of yourself. It's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It's a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It's a sense of personal unworthiness before God. And it's a sense that if there's to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and completely of grace because you don't deserve it and you can't earn it. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. And the words awareness and sense of are important here because the reality is everybody's poor in spirit whether they acknowledge it or not, right? That's the reality. The Bible says every knee will bow. President, not president, right? King, not king. Every knee will bow. One day, Jesus is going to show up in such a way there will be no question as to who stands and who bows. Every knee will hit the ground and cry out. Every knee. Every knee. So this is actually true of all of humanity. But who is blessed? Who's happy? The ones who realize it. The ones who feel it. The ones who know it ones who have stopped pretending that they're actually a pretty good person, the ones who understand they can't earn God's favor, that's who's blessed. That's who will enter into the kingdom of God. So how do we become poor in spirit? How do we get there? Well, here's the deal. It's not by looking, here's good news, it's not by looking at yourself. It's not by trying harder. It's not this list of things to do. Okay, this week I'm going to become poor in spirit and I'm going to try to do this and this and this. No, no, no. How we get there, like that that's where kind of monks get it wrong. They, they say, right, we're going to leave society. We're going to deprive ourselves. We're going to make sure we suffer this amount of, of stuff. And, and in reality, all that does is make you more conscious of yourself and less poor in the spirit, right? It's not helpful. So what do we do? How do we become poor in the spirit? We look at God, period. We don't look at ourselves. We're not trying to do better, get, you know, get more poor in the spirit. No, no, we just simply look at God. We read his book. We, we, we let it inform our view of him. Like we read the gospels and we see the, the power that he displays. We see the holiness. We see the wisdom. We see the glory that is displayed in this book. And we let that stir us. We let that fuel our view of him. And that will automatically put us back in our place. Right? As we see him for who he is, that will rightly help us to see us for, for who we are. The theme of the scriptural characters that we looked into who were poor in spirit was a confrontation with God himself. Right? Those who were poor in spirit were those who had been confronted with the holiness of God. That instantly put them in their place. So I want to end with another Bible character's experience. If, just get a Bible out. If you've already closed one, an app, iPad, phone, Bible's in front of you, actual hard Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 1. That's the last book in the Bible. Turn to chapter 1. And I want to I look at John's experience in a moment where it's super clear that this guy is poor in the Spirit. And it's a powerful passage. In, John, er, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. Listen, John, John was beloved by Jesus. So much so, the other disciples called him the one who Jesus loved. They were tight. He was like the closest to Jesus. And he'd done some things, Right? He'd helped lead some churches. He wrote some epistles. They tried to kill the guy. I don't know if you know his story. They martyred all the, all the early apostles and disciples, and, they, and 
except John. He's the only one who didn't die by martyrdom, but that wasn't because they didn't try. They tried to kill this dude, and the Lord wouldn't let it happen. They tried to boil him alive. It wouldn't happen. So what do they do? They exile him. They put him on an island called Patmos, and God has a plan. So John's on that island, end of his life. He suffered, and somebody shows up. So I'm going to read this with you. Starting in verse 12 of Revelation 1, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one was like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like, they were white, like, like white wool, like, like, like snow. His eyes were, were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We can't even look, like we can't even look at the sun. He says, that's the kind of holiness that he's beholding. When I saw him, what does John do? Does he get up and high-five Jesus? This is the guy who, like, this is the one that, like, knows Jesus, right? Like, they're, they're tight, they're buddies, they're, they're the one who Jesus loved, they're, they're best friends. Does he get up and be like, Man, Jesus, it's so good to see you. And right, like, give him a bro hug. What does he do? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell down as though I was dead. There's no presumption, even amongst the one that Jesus loved, that he belongs in the presence of this holy king. But it says he laid his hand on me. Laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I've got the keys to death and Haiti. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen. We've got some work to do. He says, Yeah, it's me. It's me, John. Hey, get up, buddy. I died. You're right. And I came back and I got the keys to death in Hades and we got some work to do. I'm going to give you a vision and you're going to write it to the churches. And people in 2021 are going to read this. And when they do, they're going to hit their face in worship because I'll still be just as righteous. I'll still be just as alive. I'll still be risen. And the grave will still be empty because I'm king of kings and lord of lords. And anybody who presumes to stand up in front of me, when they realize who I am, will hit their face in worship. Get up, John, and write what you see. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us. Help us just to see you rightly so that we might become poor in spirit. There's no steps to get there other than seeing you for who you are. And we can't see you unless you reveal yourself. So would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you enlighten us? Would you help us to see you for who you are? I ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.